following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. What is it that stretches your patience? What is it that tests your patience? I asked that first hour, and there was a couple up front, and they just said, Sammy, they have one child that pushes their limits and pushes their buttons unbelievably. But I know for me, I was thinking about at this stage of my life, phone Gehenna. Do you know what phone Gehenna is? It's where they put you on hold for 10, 15, 40, yesterday, 90 minutes. And then when they pick up the phone, they get the same information they already asked you, they put you back on hold. It's phone Gehenna. That's my test. The second test for me is the FBC building plan. That's right. That's right. Will DeMar. I'm loving them, starting to feel, you know, the test of uh, patience with that. And then also uh, texting drivers. Does that ever drive you crazy? Okay, so they're in front of you. You're going to make a right turn. You're wanting to go ahead. The signal's green, and you can see them. You know, you give them a little tap on the horn. The phone goes flying, and off you go. Interesting enough, uh, the Bible actually talks a lot about patience, and it actually talks about our God being a very patient God. In fact, uh, how do you fare with those tests of patience? Because God really calls all of us believers to be those who don't become exasperated, don't become angry, uh, but we remember that God is very, very patient with us. In fact, if Christ was so willing to hold back righteous anger with us, then how much more should we be willing to hold back, in a sense, anger or frustration with someone else? The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter actually wants to equip churches of Asia to be patient, patient concerning the return of Christ. The false teachers are pushing for, hey, he's delaying on purpose, and they're they're almost pushing for impatience. And yet, what you have in 2 Peter chapter 3, and please, if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, follow along in the outline that you either have handed to you or is on your phone, and we're going to see some incredible things today. Chapter 3 is actually written about the main event of eschatology, which is the second coming of Christ, when he punishes his enemies and he rewards his children. And in verses 1 and 2, point number 1 in your outline, the return of Christ is certain. Peter establishes that, and he says very clearly in 1 and 2, because of the hundreds of promises that God made by the Old Testament prophets, by Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels, and by the New Testament apostles, they've all promised repeatedly that Jesus Christ is coming again. It is certain. In fact, if you trust your Bible, then you have to trust that Jesus Christ is going to come again. But in spite of that, the false teachers are going to argue against that. It's kind of their word against God's word. And number two in your outline, the return of Christ is challenged. It's fought against. The false teachers actually attack the clear teaching of God's word, we've already seen, with intimidation through mockery and flaunting their so-called freedoms with an immoral, lustful lifestyle And they try to manipulate the thinking of believers through their arguments, none of which, by the way, will stop Christ from coming to judge, right? Nothing's going to stop that. 
to punish those without Christ and to reward those who are in Christ. And so in response to these particular arguments, then Peter, number three in your outline, he makes sure that you know that the return of Christ is clear. It's clear. In fact, Peter takes six verses to show us the foolishness of the false teacher claims. Now last week we looked at verses 5 through 7, and that was first in your outline, God's invasion of history destroys the uniformitarianism arguments. Now verse 4, they were basically saying in their worldview, which is a uniformitarianism worldview, that the false teachers constantly pontificate. They're basically saying because everything in the past has always been the same, then everything in the future will always be the same. Literally, what they're saying is Christ has done nothing radical in the past to alter the world, so he's not going to do anything radical in the future to alter this planet. That's basically what they're trying to say. But then Peter wipes them out, and he wipes them out by talking about two incredible events that basically changed all of history, right? First, the creation of the world out of nothing. He says that in verse 5, and then in verse 6, he says, the universal flood, which drowned all of humanity, changed this planet radically. Those were definitely divine intrusions into space and time. Would you agree with that? So he basically says that it is so certain then that he's going to return. He ends up with verse 7 saying that it's going to be Christ is going to come. He's going to punish his enemies. Judgment of all mankind is clearly going to happen. It's so certain in the past, it is also certain in the future. But the false teachers won't give up because they also keep arguing that why is Christ taking so long? And what's sad about this particular argument is that there were Christians way back 2,000 years ago, all right, in the early church. Jesus has not even been gone for 30, 40 years yet, and they're still going, what's taking so long? You ever felt that year in your own heart 2,000 years later? So they are struggling, and they're being manipulated somewhat by the false teachers. So Peter answers that question, and we're going to look at that today in verses 8, 9, and 10. He's going to answer the question, why is it taking so long? Is Christ delaying? Well, under the return is clear, secondly in your outline, the very character of God destroys the delay arguments. The very character of God. I love that. So I want you to read aloud with me from your outline, verses 8, 9, and 10. Can we do that together? Let's read it together from your outline so we can all read of a good version Though the one that Paul used, the NASB. Here we go, verses 8, 9, and 10. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. You should be patient with the Lord's return simply because the Lord has been patient with you. I might want to write that down. You should be patient with the Lord's return because the Lord has been patient with you. The Lord Jesus Christ promised he would return, and he's going to keep that promise. God calls on each of you now to be patient, patient. We need to expect 
the return of Christ. We need to long for the return of Christ. We need to keep the focus on the return of Christ. And it's that return which gives us incredible hope. The second coming actually does remind us that we should continue in our fight of sin and live obediently because his return is going to happen in any moment. It is called imminent, any second. In fact, the return of Christ requires a particular world stage. When you understand what will happen in the future, you're more prone to understand what is happening right now as our world is dramatically changing. And the return of Christ will bring judgment to those who uh, live unrighteously, to those who persecute the church, to those who right now in Canada are arresting pastors and putting them in jail, and those who have turned away from Christ will be punished forever. Punished forever. The second coming intensifies your desire also to share the gospel, and also doesn't it make you look forward to seeing Christ face to face? That's what we're longing for. So you should be patient with Christ's return and for it because he has been patient with you. In these three verses today, Peter has kind of blown me away. It's one of my favorite passages when a passage begins to talk about the character of God. And what he does in these three verses is he destroys the false teacher accusation that Christ is taking too long, that Christ is delaying. They say that must mean he's not coming at all. Nothing could be farther from the truth because the truth is Peter rebukes them saying, you don't really understand God. You don't understand God. A.W. Tozer made this incredible statement. I believe it is true. He said, what comes to our mind about God is the most important thing about us. Many believers today, sadly, don't study the word enough to really understand the depths of who God is. And a lot of Christians, maybe you've met many of them, often remain shallow in their knowledge of God. They think God is mostly loving. And so they don't understand when 9-11 happens or when COVID-19 attacks the world. Uh, they'll think, well, God is mostly forgiving, so they don't take their sin very seriously. Or they think that God is mostly inactive, so they live how they want, as if God's not involved in the equation at all. Or God is not in control, so they do what others say instead of what God says in his word. Or worst of all, what happens to the shallow believer is they become guilty of Psalm 50, 21. Do you see it there? That's when God says, you thought that I was just like you, which couldn't be farther from the truth. He is unique. He is holy. He is God. And today I want you to be like my son Matthew. Now, I was a good dad. And that, and that all good fathers have to play games with their kids, correct? And so when they're really young, when they're one or so, you play all kinds of, I did, all kinds of experiments with my kids in the high chair. I don't know if you did this. But uh, one of the games that I came up with was uh, the graham cracker grab. And that was, I gave them a little tiny quarter-sized graham cracker and then the full Monty sheet, you know what I mean? The huge graham cracker. I put them both in front of them to see which one he would grab. So which one did he grab? He grabbed the huge one and immediately grabbed it and stuck it in his eye right there and cried. It was one that he couldn't handle. He couldn't even actually get it out far enough so he could get it to his mouth. And that's what I want you to do today. You say, what are you talking about? I want you to grab a hold of a God that you can't handle. 
I want you to be able to walk away from here going, I don't get that. I don't understand. That is so vast, so large, so great. And I want you to walk away with that kind of impression today. I want you to try to grab that kind of view. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, letter A in your outline, the profoundness of eternity proves that Christ is not delaying his return. The profoundness of eternity proves that Christ is not delaying his return. Look at verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like what? One day. Peter's answering the criticism that Christ has delayed so long, we really can't believe that he's coming back, but you would never say that about his return once you saw eternity from God's perspective. From God's experience of time, it hasn't been long at all. God understands time differently than you do. From people's point of view, Christ's coming seems like a long time away. From God's viewpoint, it won't be long at all. It won't be long at all. He sets, starts verse 8 with this. Look at the phrase. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Now, he's basically saying don't fail to recognize this. Do not fail. Make certain you understand this. Plus, he calls them beloved. So he's talking to Christians here. But he's also more than that. He's talking about the beloved. He's talking about God considers you beloved. You know how easy it is for us to forget how much he loves his children? Listen, I know you parents. I know some of you would die for your kids easily. You adore your children. You love them. Listen, magnify that to perfection and realize how much God loves you. You're the beloved. And it's filled with tender love and genuine affection when he says, beloved. Christians are beloved by God. And he says, Peter, he says, dear sweet family of Christians, do not forget what it means to be eternal God. Understand what eternity really means. Psalm 90 verse 4, look at that verse. Moses declared, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. Now that's Peter paraphrasing this particular psalm in verse 8, and he's encouraging his readers not to fail to recognize this one thing, and that is this. God's perspective on time is different than yours. Would you embrace that? Can you grab a hold of that big cracker? His perspective on time is different than yours. An actual theological definition of the word eternity is that God is not limited by time. God is not limited by time. Make certain you understand that the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, is eternal. Look at Isaiah. You know this verse, Isaiah 9, 6, speaking of Christ. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and what? Eternal Father. That literally is the Father of eternity. It literally means the one who oversees eternity. Eternity. Jesus is the one who is talked about in Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the first and last. I am the beginning and I am what? The end. Um, the amount of earthly time that passes is of no consequence to God's timeless perspective. A moment is no different than a century, and an eon possesses and passes 
like a moment to the eternal God. What, what seems like a long time to believers, which would be a thousand years, that's a long time to us, Peter says right here in verse 9, verse 8, that basically he's saying that it's very short to God, like one day. What seems like a long time to us, a thousand years, is like one day in God's sight. And Peter's contending that Christ's return may seem far off, but it is imminent from God's perspective. It is imminent. He's coming soon. In fact, I want to write this down. Finite people must not confine an infinite God to their time schedule. Okay, that, that has huge implications to yours and my life. A finite people must not confine an infinite God to their schedule. You know, you say, God, now, now God, I'm done with this now God, now. No, we don't confine an infinite God to our time schedule. The Lord Jesus Christ will return in the exact moment that has been planned in eternity past. In fact, those who foolishly demand that God operate according to their time frame ignore that he is, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of what? Eternity. Psalm 90. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Jesus, I am who I am. Right? Nobody made God. Sorry, kids. Nobody made him. He always was and always is. He knows all your tomorrows. He is never surprised. He never says, oops, and he never goes, oh, oh, bummer. Never says that. Now, understand, just like those who press God's timing, there are those who argue Christ will not return since he's taken so long, but their argument is foolish when you begin to examine the eternal God. John Piper writes this, since our God is immortal, does not age, does not forget, sees all of history at a glance, and is never bored, he clearly does not experience time like we do, right? And since you were made in God's image, there is in you something like God's experience of time. The older that you get, it seems like the faster time goes, correct? I mean, older people say, it just seems like yesterday I was in school. It just seems like yesterday I was having kids. It just seems like yesterday we got married. But not only age begins to give you a little taste in being made in God's image, but also joy. Joy makes us experience time like God. Again, what we mentioned a couple weeks back, you know, when you're in a meeting and it's boring, it's almost like it's pulling teeth out of your head, right? It's horrible without anesthetic. But if you go on vacation and you're having an incredible time and then you get back, you got, it seems like we just got here yesterday, right? Joy affects your perspective on time. And when Jesus comes back and stands on this earth to make it his own, he will say, it just seems like yesterday I was here. Because he is eternal and he is the God of joy, is he not? Don't fail to recognize that it is no argument against Christ's second coming that almost 2,000 years have passed since his departure. From God's experience of time, it's as though Christ just arrived at his right hand and he is basically there since the day before yesterday. You should be patient with Christ's return because he has been so patient with us. And so letter A, the profoundness of eternity not only proves that Christ is not delaying his return, but letter B in your outline, the depth of God's mercy proves that Christ is not delaying his return. The depth of his mercy. Not only his eternal nature, but his magnificent mercy. God's mercy is God's tender compassion towards us. 
in our distress, causing him to act on our behalf to relieve our suffering when he knows it is best to relieve it, when he knows. That's his mercy. And you can only be tempted to think that Christ is delaying his return when you have a low view of God. When you have a low view of God, you can be tempted that way. When you have a high view of God, you recognize he's not taking any delay at all. In fact, Peter responds to the attack on Christ's return as a delay in a powerful way in verse 9. Take a look at verse 9, an incredible verse. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is what? He is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says Jesus will keep his promise to return. Now the writer of Hebrews said the same thing, that God will fulfill his promise made to them. But what did he write in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, there in your outline? For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will what? He'll come and will not delay. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise. And Peter tells you in verse 9, God is patiently waiting, driven by an incredible heart of abundant mercy. Mercy. Despite the ridicule of the scoffers, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Now, slow actually means idle. It means delayed. It means late. It has actually a picture of loitering, and that's what they're saying. God is loitering. None of that applies to God, though. Uh, His seeming slowness is not due to lack of ability, lack of forgetfulness, lack of willingness, or apathy, but his promise. He's fulfilling his promise. He's working everything precisely according to his perfect will and his perfect schedule. Perfect. John MacArthur writes this, the reason Christ's return is not immediate is because God is patient with sinners. Any waiting is attributable only to God's gracious long-suffering. It is not that he is indifferent, powerless, or distracted. Instead, it is just the opposite. Because he is merciful and forbearing, he delays so that elect sinners might come to what? Repentance. The cause of the so-called delay is not from God's disinterest. The cause of the seeming delay lies in God's mercy towards horrible sinners like you and like me. God is giving more time for his chosen children to repent of their sins. Jesus will return when God's patience has ended and when the time allotted has expired. And catch this, he'll return when the last believer has turned to Christ as Savior. He'll return. It is the sovereign God who graciously grants a time interval for repentance God works out a plan. God knows what he's doing. What is he doing? Even though you and I might express doubts, let's pick this verse apart and see what he actually says here. Verse 9 adds, as some count slowness. Now the word some in this verse is not the scoffers of verse 3, but they are the believers, the beloved. We already saw the term beloved there in the context, who've been influenced by these scoffers. So he's talking about some, the believers who are counting this slowness. Some Christians are unable to explain the delay of Christ's return and began to doubt. And as they began to doubt, they they listened to the scoffers. And so Peter says, God has a purpose for this time. Don't allow that time frame to affect you. 
Verse 9 continues, but God is patient towards you. You see it there? God is patient towards you. Peter addresses the readers again, not the scoffers, when he writes the pronoun you. He is patient towards you, beloved. He is patient towards you, Christian. It's the immediate readers, as well as those who will ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. You say, who is he talking about here? Those in John 10, 16, when he talks about you here this morning at FBC. Look what he says. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Gentile sheepies are on their way. Some have argued that the you here implies that God teaches and gives salvation to all people. But again, if you understand the context, which of course is a very, very important hermeneutical principle, verse 7 says, the destruction of ungodly men clearly limits the you here to believers. Plus, consider the term beloved listed four times in chapter 3. That also restricts the pronoun you here to born-again Christians. So Peter's indicating that God does not judge his people hastily, but he grants them sufficient time to come to repentance. He gives them enough time to be born again in Christ. God is patient, and God shows his patience now as he showed his patience before. Now, when did God show his patience? Well, he's done it many times, many times with me personally, but also in a bigger scale in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Remember that? Look at it. For once we were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. 120 years God waited for the ark and Noah and etc. Patience in verse 9 is a compound word. It's a little bit scary. Are you ready? It comes from two words meaning large and also great anger. Large and great anger. And Peter uses it here to show that God has a vast capacity, a large capacity for storing up anger and wrath before it spills out in judgment. God holds back. Come on, dads, you know what I'm talking about, right? That guy's texting in front of you, you kind of hold back, right? Patience. You're holding back the anger, so to speak, while that judgment that is coming is inescapable and it is deadly. It is God's merciful patience that he gives his chosen the opportunity for reconciliation and for salvation. So God's wrath towards the individual sinner is immediately appeased when any person repents and believes in the gospel. Anyone. God has been patiently, are you ready? Catch this, don't drift out. He's been patiently waiting for 2,000 years for his chosen to believe. Aren't you glad? Can I hear an amen? He has been waiting for you. You. And I'm glad he's been waiting for me. You should be patient with Christ's return because he's been patient with you. Look at so much so, verse 9 adds this, not wishing for any to perish. Not wishing for any to perish. Peter's not teaching, again, universalism, again, that everybody gets saved. In this letter, Peter's clearly stating the false teachers and the scoffers are condemned and will face destruction. So the whole passage is about God destroying the wicked. His patience is not so that he can save all of them, but so that he can receive all of his own. He can't be waiting for 
the world and the ungodly, those who do perish, go to hell because they are depraved and worthy only of hell and have rejected the only remedy, Jesus Christ. Not because they were created for hell, not because they were predetermined to go to hell, but because by their sin they deserve it. He says, not wishing for any to perish. Perish actually means the destroyer, the destruction, utterly destroyed in eternal hell, suffering forever damnation because they're dead in their sins and they refuse God's offer of salvation in Christ, the only way to be saved, the only way to go to heaven, the only way, Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. At the same time, it is clear in the scripture that the Father takes no delight in the death of the wicked, the death of the lost, Ezekiel 18, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. There's no desire for that. God even wants the false teachers to be saved. But sadly, they have disregarded God's mercy. They've disregarded God's patience. They've even rewritten. They take God's patience as weakness and they use it as an accusation, and they look at God's mercy, and they say, oh, no, 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 no. He's delaying instead of accepting his mercy. They're accusing God. So they've rejected him, and they will experience and bear the full responsibility for their own condemnation. But look at how he ends verse 9. He ends, but God wanting for all to come to repentance. God provides a time for people to repent, but repentance is an act that people must perform. Now, yes, it's a gift from God, but you must act on it. The mockers in Peter's day refused to come to repentance. They're not going to turn from their lustful ways, their sin, their life. I did it my way. I'm going to live how I want. Even though God was granting them a period of time of mercy to respond to repentance. Now, all of you know what repentance is, right? It literally means, ready, to change your mind, which change your life. It always issues forth in behavior. True repentance always <laughs> issues forth in behavior. Look at Acts 26.20, 20, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. There's always fruit that comes from genuine repentance. And God wants to save his chosen children. And the context here indicates the any, any to perish, and all, for all to come to repentance, that's limited to the elect, Namely, all those whom God has chosen, he will call to himself. Another way to put it would be like this. Maybe you could put this in your margin. Christ will not come back until every person whom God has chosen is saved. Christ will not come back until every person he has chosen is saved. Because you're dead in your sins, you're unable to respond to God. God must choose you. God must awaken your heart to call you to himself so you can respond in repentance and faith. You know these verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the what? The foundation of the world. He did it before even the world existed. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I what? You did not choose him. He chose you. Romans 9, 16, so then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or chooses or decides or the man who runs, puts forth effort, but on God who has what? Mercy. The reason for the so-called delay is not because he's slow to keep his promise or because he wants to judge more of the wicked or because he's impotent in the face of wickedness. No, he delays his coming because he's patient and his mercy 
desires time for his people to repent. Are you right? Are you ready? Here you go. How many of you right now, today, are saved? Can I see your hands? Put them up. Wow. He's been waiting 2,000 years for you. 2,000 years for you. Wow. Those who are not saved, he's still waiting for you. Would you please hurry up so we can get out of here? Of course, once all the elector accounted for, his patience will have reached its limit. It'll run out. Having given the world as much time as he sovereignly determined, he will pour out his wrath on the earth, which leads us to verse 10. Again, his patience currently holds back judgment. This season of mercy you now all enjoy will not last forever. So the profoundness of eternity, the depth of his mercy, and letter C in your outline, the certainty of Christ's return, and the power of his judgment undoes any deception over his delay. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Based on his preceding arguments here, Peter confidently asserts that the day of the Lord will come, no matter what the false teachers say, whatever they claim, their evidence has no foundation. It's, it's basically the evidence against them is overwhelming. Peter's destroying them. And the day of the Lord is the future time of judgment whereby God judges the wicked on the earth and ends this world system in its present form. Listen, you need to understand this. The Old Testament describes the day of the Lord, this, this coming judgment and his return, as an unequal darkness and damnation period when the Lord will act in a climactic way to vindicate his name. He's going to vindicate his name. He's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to reveal his glory, and he's going to establish his kingdom. That's all in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, this prophetic season, the day of the Lord, is awesome, and it's fearful. You need to understand, in the New Testament, six times they call it the day of doom. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? It's also called four times the day of vengeance. Vengeance. This day includes horrifying judgments from God because of the world's overwhelming sinfulness. It occurs at the time of the tribulation on earth and again a thousand years later at the end of the millennium kingdom before the creation of a new heaven and a new earth when God makes everything new. And he washes, literally burns this world of its sinful taint and creates a whole new planet and eternity and heaven. In fact, it will come, verse 10, like a thief. The day of the Lord is unexpected. It'll come without warning and disastrous for the unprepared. And Christ is so powerful, look what he's going to do in verse 10. Look what he's going to do. Verse 10, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. He's talking about, my friends, the physical universe. Listen, the last time you looked up in the sky, you were looking at the universe. And that is going to end. It is going to end with all the interstellar space, intergalactic space. The physical universe is going to end. And the roar, when he says it's going to pass away with a roar, is an onomatopoetic word. Anima poetic. You know what that means? It means it means what it sounds. It sounds what it means. So in the Greek language, it sounds like crackling fire. It sounds like a roar of crackling fire, 
like a, 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 a huge wind. And, and basically, that's what the word means, and that's what the word sounds like. And on that future day, the noise of, from the disintegrating atoms of the universe will be deafening. It will be nothing that has ever occurred on this planet or in this universe before. And it says, right at the final phase of this day of the Lord, Matthew 24, the heavens and the earth will pass away. They're done. Everything you see here, everything you've seen on this planet is over. Everything you have stored in your house in a secret place is done. Everything that you have outside of your house in your storage shed, it's over, friends. Over. God is so powerful, he will incinerate the universe. That's how powerful he is, which is what Peter describes in verse 10. Look at the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The elements, talk about the atomic components, the atoms, neutrons, protons, electrons, are all going to burn everything to disintegration. The entire physical earth in its present form, along with the entire universe, will be consumed. You ever light a ping pong ball on fire? Anybody ever done that? It's amazing. It's so cool. I know some of you dads are going to do this at home for your kids. You need to. Put it up on a, you know, the backside of a glass, put your little Bic lighter by it, and it just goes, and it's done. There's nothing left but a little tiny crust of, of, of black whatever. It's over. That's what it's going to be like. Amazing. In fact, he is so powerful. Look at verse 10. The earth and its works will be burned up. That's God's power. It's going to burn up every civilization, every ecosystem, every natural resource, everything in this material realm along with all the surrounding celestial universe, all your stuff, even in storage, is gone, all your extra pairs of shoes you're not wearing. Even in the midst of that mind-boggling destruction, the Lord will prepare and prepare and protect His sheep. Jeremiah 32, 17, O Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm nothing is too difficult for you. God made the universe with his great power. God will destroy the universe with his great power. There is nothing impossible for God. At the moment, false teachers may be mocking, but their disparaging insults are only short-lived here in Second Peter. And even today, you've got scientists, you've got people writing articles, you've got Christians who are just totally maligning the Bible, so-called Christians, and understand that's all going to end. That's all going to end. The certainty of God's word stands above all their opinions and all their comments. All of it. Christ will return. Judgment, God's judgment will be displayed. A fact guaranteed by his hundreds of promises and fulfilled by his amazing power. Unlimited power. All power. Omnipotence. And after he returns, the entire present universe will cease to exist it will be replaced by a completely new heaven, a completely new earth where the righteous will live with God forever. Looking forward to that. Revelation 22, they will see his face, verse 5, and they will reign forever and ever. You know, friends, you should be patient. It's been 2,000 years, but be patient because he was patient with you, was he not? Waiting for you. So let's take this home. Make it a life passion to pursue the knowledge of God. Make it a life passion. I know some of you right now are in community groups and you're studying knowing God. Praise God for that. If you're not in a community group, what's wrong with you? 
something mental's going on there because they're studying God. It's, you can't get any better than that. And here you've seen God's patience, His eternality, His mercy, His power. You, just pondering today should encourage you and grow you intimate with Christ. And I want to light a fire, can I? Underneath you that will never go out. I want you to be hungry for knowing God. I want you to be so attracted to learning his attributes and learning his character and that you never tire of it. I want you to be like Moses who cried, I pray, show me thy glory. I want you to be like David who said, like the deer pants for the watery brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. I want you to be like Paul who said, I count all things to be rubbish in comparison to knowing and the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Understand, the greatest Christians are those who not only want to know about God, they make choices to know God. They exercise discipline to know God. They come to worship. They, they read His Word. They're in fellowship. They're in discipleship. They're in intentional study of His character. Make certain that knowing God is something you constantly fall back on because it'll be the knowledge of God that will catch you in your darkest days. It will be the knowledge of God that will comfort you in your greatest sorrow. It will be the knowledge of God that carries you through any trial in any situation. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. You want to know him. And not just know about him, but know him as the God who was revealed in these verses today. Letter B. <clears throat> Allow God's patience and his mercy to move you to gratitude. When you leave today, please, leave pondering and deeply pondering the fact of God's immense patience in waiting for you to come to Christ. How long has he waited? Our Lord has been patiently waiting to save you for 2,000 years. Talk about patience. I can sometimes barely wait 20 seconds for Gene to get in the car. God has waited 2,000 years. And the Lord had to work really hard to get me. He had to save my family. Then he had to move them to pray. Then he got the whole church involved in praying just to get me into the faith. Now, God sovereignly had to save me. But he involved all those people to extend his mercy to me. He waited for me. He waited for you. I hope and pray that when you leave today and all throughout this week, you say thank you. Just say thank you for waiting for me. Thank you for calling me and making me your child. And letter C, understand the necessity to repent in order to be genuinely saved. Listen, it is Christ who must choose you, the Spirit must call you, but you are responsible this day to repent and turn to Christ. Both truths are biblical. He has to call you, you must repent. And the path to eternal damnation in hell is the path, are you ready, of the non-repentant heart. It's the path of the one who rejects the person and provision of Christ and holds on to their sin. It's the path of those who refuse to turn from their sin to follow Christ as Lord. It's the path of the one who remains in the church but only lives for themselves. It's the path of the one who hears the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done for you but remains indifferent and remains externally religious and remains Christian in name only. And the Bible says repeatedly, all must come to repentance. And it's not an external thing, friends. It's an internal reality. 
You must repent. Matthew 4, 7. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who what? Repents. Romans 2, 4. It is the kindness of God waiting for you, loving you, providing salvation for you that leads you to repentance. In Acts 20, 21, Solomon testifying both to Jew and to Greek, that's everyone, of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercy waits for you. But not forever. Not forever. Turn from your sin and follow Christ today. Amen? Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.